You're about to hear a podcast recorded before our rebrand, so you might hear us mention our previous brand name, We Are Radical, or our original podcast name, The Radicalist. We're still the same show with the same hosts on the same mission. And if you'd like to find out how we got here, you'll find our journey on the stories page of obuinvest.com. Hello and welcome to the Radicalist podcast, where we have frank conversations with fierce women founders. This is a podcast about not settling, full of honest conversations with women who have wanted to build their own businesses and did. If you're making the tough but incredible decision to start up, sustain or scale your own business, we've got you. Because we're a podcast by, for and about women who do exactly that. Women looking that leap in the eye, women taking their first steps as founders, Women with stories about the journeys they've been on, the hacks that have helped, and everything they've seen along the way. Women like us, and women like you. We're Sarah King. And Claire Dunn. And we're the founders of We Are Radical. And this is The Radicalist Podcast. Kirsten Robinson is the co-founder of Nixon Kicks, a not-so-small drinks brand that's available in retailers across the country, including Waitrose, Nando's, Sainsbury's, and frankly, loads more. Kirsten talks to us about the importance of developing an amazing visual brand and how Nixon Kicks have achieved this, why they did a crowdfunding raise with Cedars, and how co-founding has accelerated the growth of their business. Kirsten, it's fabulous to welcome you to the Radicalist podcast. I'd love to take you back to 2014. So you're working in global banking at HSBC and you decide, I know I'm going to launch an FMCG product. What was the inspiration behind making that pivot? And how did you feel your own confidence at that time to shift from a corporate career into being an entrepreneur? Yes. So <laughs> very good question. And I can't believe it's been already um, seven years almost since this shift happened. Mm, wow. um, it's definitely been a crazy journey since then. And obviously, the banking sector I was in operated a, in a slightly different way to uh, our little business right now. So first of all, yes, it is a massive difference. It feels like two different worlds almost. Making that decision, though, seems like a bit of a something that you can understand when you think about banking very much a numbers, numbers, numbers. You never see really the output of your making apart from making people richer or like helping people hedge their their finances, whatever it is. But there's no like output. There's no like product at the end of it. You can hold in your hands and you say amazing, I just made that. I think that was definitely one big thing that drew me particularly to a sector where that is happening. You make a product and then later on you see it out there everywhere you go. And also because of being interested in the in the food and drink sector and especially in healthier food and drink products. And funny enough, I mean, obviously seven years ago, the shelves in supermarkets looked a lot different to what they uh, look right now. It was very difficult to find a healthy drink option when you go out drinking or when you want to have something in the afternoon, a drink, you know, with your, your afternoon break or something like this. So that was like a, almost like, a, oh, there is definitely a, a need for this. And then obviously we didn't just jump in. So I have obviously I, I didn't found the business myself. I have a co-founder. Funny enough, it's just uh, interesting how we both 
ended up at the same stage of our life. We wanted to get out of our big company jobs and do something else. So it was great to have someone else there as well, obviously, to help and give me that confidence to do it. And how we did it is we went to markets on the weekends. So obviously we had the day job, busy during the week. And then Friday night, we would spend almost all night preparing for that Saturday morning market we would go to. And then we would stand there in the rain and the cold and the wind, whatever it was. And we would try to tell people about a product we had. And that was really giving us the confidence to say, yeah, this could be something. But obviously, the product was very different at the time uh, in terms of how it looked, how it tasted, what it was. But we just needed that confidence that, you know, the consumer saying, hey, oh, actually, you're onto something. I like something that's healthier, uh, better for you. And that is what uh, gave us probably the final reason to quit. And then obviously it wasn't quite like, when is the right moment to do it? Uh, <laughs> there's kind of never really a right moment. But, um, you know, when I handed in my notice, day after, or even that night, I was sweating. I was, you know, dependent on this paycheck. The next day I went to my boss and I said, can I have the job back? I think this was the wrong decision. And he said, no. No, he said no, <laughs> which I am so oh, grateful man. for that I did that because he knew that that was a real passionate thing for me, wanted to do it. So he was actually being very supportive by being not very nice at the time. <laughs> so it's a co-founded business. You've already suggested that the two of you were at a similar place with your careers in terms of wanting to pursue something different. But where did your co-founder come from? Like, were you friends? Were you colleagues? And as you think about how you co-founded your business, what are the really valuable lessons that, that if you've learned in the last seven years? Yes, sure. So Julia and I, so Julia is my co-founder, uh, Julia and I met actually on a plane coming to the UK a long, long time oh, wow. ago. Yes. So we both were relocating that same day. We met at the airport because we were coming from the same like area in Germany and started talking, went into different uh, careers. So mine was banking, Julia actually operations. She worked for big blue chip companies in the UK. And yeah, we obviously became friends and stayed in touch. She was obviously always very supportive of what I was trying to do. It was like, uh, yeah, of course I come to to the markets with you. And when you do this on a Saturday morning, amazing. seven o'clock <laughs> set up and all that, let's do it. That was amazing. So um, just having her there, it was good to know that you're not doing it alone. It is very lonely. Yeah, especially at the beginning when you're like new to all of this, you don't really know anyone in the startup world. You know, you come from a completely different environment where everyone goes to work, uh, you know, in, in the morning and comes back in the evening and that's it and doesn't know how it is to work all the time. It is so good to have someone there with you to experience that. And uh, it worked out pretty well as well in terms of our skill sets. So she's very good in operations. She knows exactly what she's doing there. Me doing the finance side. She's also very good at selling. So she just picked that function up as well. I like more the kind of marketing bits and, you know, design, etc. That's my world. It was quite easy to divide our tasks in the business, which I think was really important as well, because if we were both going to do the same thing, who was going to do the other bits? So it just worked out really well. It was amazing to have that. So definitely um, a good thing. I think when you can understand and appreciate each other's skill sets, it allows you to lean into each other. So not only do you build your business more efficiently, more effectively, but you can point to the right resources and in the right direction at the right time for different roles or different jobs or different conversations that come your way without 
you know, forever entering into maybe a tricky conversation work, which is, well, who's going to lead on this bit and who's going to do this thing over here? It's the way that Sarah and I approach um, We Are Radical as well. And I think that clarity over roles is really empowering. It definitely is. It makes our life a lot easier, for sure. It made at the beginning when it was just the two of us. And for a very long time, it was just the two of us. So absolutely, you know, when you start off and you kind of have to do it all, you kind of have to make sure that you can cover as many things as possible uh, because you wouldn't have, I mean, we didn't have the money to employ people or bring agencies in that can help us. We did it all ourselves, really, apart from the branding that, of course, we didn't, you know, <laughs> we're not designers, but we did almost everything ourselves, including at the very start, actually making the drinks and bottling them <laughs> Friday nights. Yeah, we would make them. And then at some point we found a little um, salad shop in central London. We just walked past it one day. The guys in the front were making the salads. We came in, it was actually the founders or the owners. They only just started up themselves. So they were very open to a conversation with other founders. They let us actually use their kitchen in the back and we would put the drinks on their shelf in the front. We didn't obviously charge them for the drinks. We just said all the profit, everything you make from them goes to you. All we want is basically customer feedback. We want to see, we want to just sit there because a big learning from these initial days at these uh, market stalls was that people don't tell you their real opinion face to face, but that doesn't help. You need the hard facts. You need to understand, does someone actually pick it up from the shelf uh, without you being there, without you giving the full story about the product? Because in the long term, that's always not feasible. So that was a really nice little project. Very good to see, does it actually work in a real life environment? That was a great next step for us. But yeah, we still made the drinks ourselves in the kitchen there. I'm really interested in how you went from we're making this product at our kitchen tables and we're in a local cafe to you're now stocked in Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Nando's, other large, well-known brands. Did you always know that this was a business that you wanted to grow and scale in this way? And how did you make that first step from relatively small, relatively local to, no, we've now got some really exciting partnerships? Very good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm yeah. sure it involves some highlights. <laughs> yes, and a lot of patience and a lot of waiting for emails of people to write back to you, etc. Yes, so yeah, of course. I mean, we we knew it is it is a mass product. It needs to be in as many places as possible to really make a this business viable. So we knew that from the start that we did we wanted to be in all the big chains. Um, at the beginning, we were very much thinking about restaurant chains or bar chains because we understood that especially when you go out drinking in the evening, the options were very limited if you're not drinking alcohol. But we learned also very quickly along the journey that it is hard to start in that space if you're a new product because you land at the back of the bar, some are bottom of the bar, the bartender would probably not recommend you because they have other things to do. And no one really asks, do you have any non-alcoholic options that are better than the big brands? So you just sit behind the bar and no one will ever know about you. So you need to start in a different way. And that's then when we got into retail uh, or we started talking to retailers because even the bar chains say, come back once you are in Tesco's. So we thought, okay, we have to get into Tesco's now. So this is how it kind of started. 
and obviously it wasn't super easy to get into those. And um, you know, there was there was a time when we thought, oh, is this business going anywhere? When was that in 2016? Uh, when we were like, oh well, we try to make this work in the coffee shops. Very very interesting in the summer. You know, you go there like from springtime until early Septemberish. It's amazing. Non hot drinks are you know selling, but it was just such a shock to us when then these coffee shop chains or owners say to us, well, you know, thank you very much. It was great to do, uh, deal with you. Come back in March next year. <laughs> when, <laughs> so right. like, what are we going to do? I mean, it's also it's another thing, very seasonal. So yeah, there was a time at the end of 2016 when we thought, wow, is this actually what is happening here? But then also we did a little tweak to the product. We made some changes to the branding. And then funny, actually one day we were like very close to saying, this is it now. I think we're done. You know, we've tried it all. But we hadn't actually launched the new branding on the new the products yet really into the market. And funny enough, then the next day we get an email from Waitrose saying, hey, because they had already then seen and tasted the new new drinks. And they were like, wow, yeah, we like to stock your product. <laughs> and wow. like, I guess we're back on. So and 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 from that onwards, yeah. it really like it was one after the other. So we got into Ocado that in 2017, Waitrose then launches in 2017, Tesco launches in 2017. So that was really a big year for us, and, and prompted by this new product, you know, making sure the product looks better, tastes better, the sort of thing that all happened early 2017. And and from that onwards, that was actually really the birth of our brand. You could say anything before then was very much testing, learning, improving. And that's how it started. So it was a bit of a snowball effect. But yeah, definitely wasn't easy to get into the first one. Branding and your visual identity holds such weight. And it can also be something that entrepreneurs really agonize over. What was your journey like in actually landing on the right branding and what advice have you got for any founders who are either thinking of a rebrand or trying to figure out their visual identity at the moment? So for us, it was definitely a journey. So we rebranded two times, three times. Oh my God, I can't even remember. Quite a few times. (laughs) So what I'm trying to say is like, don't be too hung up at the very start because you will learn along the way, you know, about your consumer, about things that you should maybe change on your packaging. So don't be like so hung up on your initial branding. Yes, it's important to get the product out with good branding and, you know, make it as easy for the consumer to understand as possible. You don't need to spend the big money. You know, our first branding was a thousand pounds or something like that. We paid for it, which at the time was a lot of money for us. And we were really thinking, shall we spend this money? Now thinking back, it was just ridiculously cheap. But, you know, that kind of helped us get into places. And then we iterated from there. You know, we found out what the product actually should be doing, especially once we realized, oh, retail is more the area we should go for. Then we kind of got someone else involved that helped us, you know, tweak the branding to make it more retail friendly. And the latest rebrand was a a massive process. It took us a long time, actually, to get to that stage. And we just knew at the time we wanted to rebrand. We had some feedback that, you know, the drink, because it had that chilly smile on the front, made people think it was too spicy. You know, and people that really loved spicy stuff that were going for it because of that were then disappointed because it wasn't quite spicy enough. So we basically were not pleasing anyone. And apart from that, also, obviously, a lot of people wouldn't buy it in the first place because they were too afraid. But they had they 
tried it, they would have actually loved it. So this was a massive problem for us. But at the same time, people really loved our branding. You know, like we had customers that were really upset when we told them we're about to change branding. But what we actually did, which was actually in hindsight, the thing we should have done like years before is really Julia and I back to basics, stood outside a little um, shop in Ireland at the time, actually, which is there anyway. So let's just, let's do it here. And we were giving out samples to people of our product and it was not branded or anything. We were just like, here, there's a little drink, have a sip and let us know what you think. And then people came up with ideas, like they told us what they tasted, which was already super interesting because later on, we actually, some of this language made it on pack. But also what they then said is when we afterwards, we showed them the packaging, they said, oh, actually, no, I would have not picked up that product. I love the drink, but the taste and the look, they don't go together. And that was super interesting for us because we realized, oh, actually, the consumer thinks this is a very tasty product and the packaging does not say tasty. It says cool, it says different, exciting, whatever, but it does not say tasty. And with that knowledge, we went into this rebrand then and we tasked Kuba and friends to really use that and make it more visual, bring out the the ingredients more. We didn't have them featured on pack and all these things to really tell the consumer this is a tasty product. And for now, we've definitely seen the uptick in sales. So launched the product November last year. Can say it was a success. We'd love to kind of change tack a little bit now. And we were really excited when we were looking at the Nixon Kits website and learning more about you to understand that you're on this journey of becoming B Corp. And clearly that as a result of that, you really believe that business can be a force for good in the world. So could you just share for our listeners, firstly, what B Corp is and why for you and your co-founder, it was important to become B Corp? Yes, of course. So B Corp is a bigger organization, very much um, originated in the States. So there's a lot more B Corp businesses actually over in the US, slowly now coming to Europe, UK, obviously. And for us, actually, we met the guys from B Corp back in 2015. It was super early when they just set up in the UK. And back then they already said, hey, you guys, you need to you know, think about this. And yes, absolutely. This was something that was always on our mind to get it done. But as you know, I mean, setting up a business and all that was taking a lot of time anyway. So we only just got around to doing the formal process. Obviously, we knew already what this framework was about. Making sure that what you set yourself as objectives from a social and environmental perspective are equally as important as your financial returns. So we had to also change our articles for this, for example. So there's a lot of legal stuff as well that goes into it. It's not just like, oh, let's be a lot more green or there's definitely something that needs to change at the very roots. So how to um, make sure that our shareholders are happy with that as well, because obviously they need to agree on any article changes. And I'm not sure that like back then when we initially had the chat with B Corp, they would have been quite so good with that. These days, when you think about the big funds investing, they very much want to see this, actually. It's gone the other way. Initially, it was like, oh, you know, profit is all we care about, to definitely, it shouldn't be only the profit that you think about. It should be about your employees as well. It should be about the environment. It's all so important. It's just 
changed the other way and now a shareholder actually wants to see that. It's, it's amazing. And it's a long process. It's not just something that you can get easily. But then that's the whole point of it because, you know, you have to obviously show that you really do the right things and not just talk about it because that's easy to do, right? You need to make sure that you are looking at your carbon footprint. You want to reduce waste. And you also look at your suppliers. You know, are they doing the right thing? Are they treating their employees correctly? Where do they get their raw material from? And all these sort of things go into it. So it's a very holistic view. It's not just about us. It's about the world around us as well. And do we choose the right partners? So it's good. And then it's not just like, oh, we're done. You know, oh, we've got the stamp now. <laughs> now we can relax <laughs> and go back to our ways. Yes, yeah. exactly. No, it's not like that. You have to actually recertify every couple of years. So you really need to be on it from that onwards. And uh, mm. that's also an important thing, really. So just moving on slightly, because there's a really, really juicy, interesting topic that we wanted to talk to you about. So we know that about four months ago, you did a crowdfunding raise using the Cedars platform. And so firstly, congratulations, because I think you absolutely smashed your target and raised 800 mm-hmm. grand, um, which was 163% over your target. So first up, whoop that's very cool (laughs) secondly though really curious to understand what was the trigger for thinking about fundraising in the first place and doing a raise and why did you select crowdfunding as your route to that yes so for us it was yeah an interesting time to do it I guess it's always tricky what is the right time to do a crowdfunding round. I guess Cedars will tell you if you're very early stage it's probably not the right thing because you need to acquire more customers first have a bit of a following so that there's a bit more momentum at the start and also obviously have some sort of investment already secured before you even go on the platform so it helps to be more established to do that and I think for us the timing was right because we were obviously available in a lot of places you know it's easy to buy us now in you know and retailers you go to um, Nando's etc so you were at the time when someone, you know, an investor could actually get, you know, okay, you know, this is a business I can definitely understand. They have some traction and I can also buy it now. We had loads of people actually on the platform come to us and say, where can I buy it? I want to buy this product first before I invest. So it was very, very easy for us to say, hey, actually, your local Sainsbury stocks the product. So, um, and they did try it and then they invested. So uh, that seemed to be like very common process for food and drink investors on the platform. So that just helped that we had a little bit of, you know, momentum and distribution already. And obviously, um, it's not as easy as it looks from the outside. You know, it's not like you press the button, the go live button on Cedars, and then the money just flows in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, it? Exactly. And, and then here we are, you know, 800,000 and more. Uh, it's, it's not quite like that. You definitely need to show that you have some momentum first. And there's definitely some initial investment already there. I think that investor on the platform really wants to see that. So all that is a lot easier, obviously, at a later stage in the business. So for me, uh, one big learning was how long it actually takes this process. There are so many bits to sort out, obviously the video you need to do. So we decided in January that we wanted to do this and we wanted to be live by March. <laughs> that, that was like, and we did go live then. So we did hit it, but it was definitely a mad rush 
There was so much to do, so much information that seeders want because, of course, for them it's important that whatever businesses they have on the platform, whatever they say, whatever little detail they say is justified. It can be evidence somewhere. So I just spent a lot of time just telling them you know, when we said, oh, this is how many distribution points we had. I had a calculation ready for them to look at to say, yeah, that's true. Or, you know, we want this about there. Have you got proof of that? And there, there were so many things that needed approval before we could go on the platform. Yeah, so there was a lot of admin just involved as well. But it was a lot of good fun as well, having, you know, people reach out to us. And I think it was just a great time for us as well to get some of our customers involved as well, um, as in like restaurant owners, etc. People that would have never had a chance to really invest in our business because in a private round, you don't go obviously to everyone and say, hey, do you, do you have some money to spend? Or do you want to invest in our business? But like having that chance for them now to do this, I mean, we were surprised how many many of our customers actually came to us and said, hey, we want to invest in the business. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so good. So yeah, so we ended up with a great number of investors who are now obviously our advocates and they are passionate about the product, about the brand and tell their friends about it. And they email once in a while and say, hey, you know, I've got this idea, whatever. So it's good to have a following like that, really. But obviously, the job isn't done once the money is in. You do need to make sure you engage with them afterwards. You need to update them on what's going on. So it is obviously something you have to consider as well. Is that the right thing for you to do? Do you really want to have so many people that you need to inform on a regular basis? Mm. It's a really interesting um, topic and one that we want to spend some more time really talking about, which is how you consider investment, what kind of investment routes you might go and explore. I think that route of you're quite well established already. You've got loads of distribution routes. You, you are a brand that you can find quite easily now in big supermarket chains and in restaurants. And so then pooling all of those fans around you who can champion the brand and who are going to advocate for the brand and who now have a real vested interest in the brand succeeding. It's a really interesting way of boosting, I guess, your presence even further. And I'm quite curious as a bit of a follow-on question is kind of, does that, because there are so many more people involved rather than maybe a handful of private investors, does that open up new channels for you? Does that open up new routes for you? Kind of as well as that advocation of the brand, what do you hope to get from a crowdsourcing raise? Good question. I think don't expect too much of the crowd and investors in general, angel investors, anyone that invests. If you think about, because at the beginning as well, we said, oh, we want some people that you know are from the industry and people that maybe have good contacts, etc. And it's definitely the case that, you know, there are some great people out there that can later then join your board. So we have John Stapleton, for example, on our board. He obviously is one of the founders of New Covent Garden Soup that he founded, sold. So he's got loads of experience. He's also founded some other businesses after that. So he obviously is a great person to have on board. But overall, fundraising is really to get money. So if you then also try to get lots of expertise from your crowd and lots of contacts, yes, fair enough, but a contact can only get you, it maybe opens a door, but you still have to do the rest. You still have to do the work. So it is helpful for sure, especially if it's someone from the space who is really dedicated. But most of the time, all these people are busy too, right? How much time will they really be dedicating to you? So try to go in with open 
eyes here. Don't expect too much. And maybe it's also better sometimes if you can just like really get the money and then you decide what you want to do with it. And hopefully you know what you want to do with it. As Claire said earlier, I mean, it's a huge achievement to have smashed your goals in terms of investment in the way that you have. When you look back on on the whole Nicks and Kicks journey so far, what things are you most proud of? Oh, there are loads. <laughs> I mean, it's been a, a quite some time, right, since we started the business. So they have to be. Definitely our rebrand was a big thing for us. Proud of as well uh, the team. We are a small team, but we are hands-on. We get stuff done. We were at a festival last week. And it was just great to see us all come together and set up the stand and be there, um, you know, talking to customers and that definitely as well. And yeah, of course, making it through the pandemic at all <laughs> uh, was something, uh, a massive thing for us. And obviously, thanks to our customers, which I'm also very proud of, um, and being so diversified as in like being in restaurants, being in convenience now in retail that really helped us spread our risk and then yeah obviously it's it's also just small things like seeing someone when you come into like a Nando's for example and you see someone drinking Nicks and Kicks that's pretty amazing <laughs> it's like someone that we don't know a stranger that just decided that they wanted to have our drink and uh, and then obviously seeing them enjoy it as well that's still the best thing. So I'd love to know from you as you look towards the next five years and we think about keeping the wheels turning. What does that look like for Nicks and Kicks? What are your ambitions for the business over the next five years? So still growing, of course. There's a lot more there to get for us. That is in the UK as well as outside the UK. So launching in new countries, just launched in the US, got a new partner over there. So that's hugely exciting. Just, yeah, growing from there. And Julia and I are from Germany originally. So we love, obviously, also to see the, the German market do well. But that in itself is a big, big project. It's almost like starting a business from scratch again, uh, just because it is so fragmented and so big. So, but that, that is a big thing also we're working on and it's also exciting for us actually as as I said it's almost like starting a business again so it feels like you know when we go to trade shows in Germany and people haven't heard of us before and it's just like brings us back to the old days you know so so that actually keeps us excited yeah so it's definitely the plan to expand grow and there's so much more still to do so we're not getting bored of it anytime soon. So as we bring our conversation to a close, are there any lessons that you would share with early stage business owners who have an FMCG idea, particularly in the drink sector? Are there any lessons that you would share from those very early days that you could now share with our listeners? Yes, of course. I mean, there's lots of lessons. There's a long, long list, <laughs> but uh, lots of things that uh, we did that we shouldn't be doing. But I would say um, these are probably themes that we've touched on already throughout the conversation today is really be patient. Things will take their time. Also, if you once you get a yes from someone like uh, Waitrose or whoever, it doesn't mean that they will launch you tomorrow. So just again, after that, be patient. It will take a bit of time and that is normal. Be persistent. Stay on top of things. Things will be a bit more difficult initially, but stay on top and they will work out, um, you know, just be positive, believe in it. I know there will be lots of people out there that will say, oh, what are you doing there? That's crazy. I mean, we had that too at the start. You know, uh, if you believe in something and you have the passion for it, then most of the time that, that is a good thing and stick to it. And uh, as we also touched on already, include your consumers. Do listen to them and, um, you know, talk to them. 
go out there and, and have a chat with people and you will learn a lot more than you could learn from like just doing research on your computer or and, and it doesn't need to cost a lot that's also that's some the best thing sometimes are free or very cheap yeah it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you Kirsten for any of our listeners who would like to find out more where can they learn more about Nicks and Kicks so first of all they can obviously go on our website which is nicksandkicks.com and obviously we're also on social media Instagram you can follow us Facebook Twitter and obviously you can find us in uh, many stores across the country Tesco Vetros we're launching in co-op soon quite exciting and Dainsbury's Morrison's we're in um, as we said Nando's BP service stations uh, and many many more As we come to the end of season one, we reflect back and realise that we have learned loads about how the tech does or doesn't sometimes work. What to do when the mic gets delivered to the wrong address, how to balance cushions over your mic so that the echo goes, and that sometimes it does take five attempts to record an outro that actually works. We have laughed loads, been inspired to think bigger, to know that it's okay to make mistakes, and to take the next step in our businesses. In the second season, launching on the 11th of October, we're tackling the number one barrier to women starting and scaling their own businesses, awareness of and access to funding. We're going to be talking to entrepreneurs to understand how they've built businesses that have attracted funding and the lessons they've learned along the way. We're also going to be exploring some exciting ideas on how to increase the number of angel investors in the UK and how to move beyond investment that just values financial return to investment that also provides know-how, inspiration and access to network. So whether you're wondering whether angel investment could be right for your business or you're curious about crowdfunding and how it could help you to scale, in the second season, we'll be providing all of the know-how and inspiration you need to count yourself into a funding conversation. Season one, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag losers. <laughs>